Good morning, Grace Church. So good to see everybody here on campus. Welcome. Glad you're here. Tell your neighbor, I'm glad to see you in the house of the Lord today. Those joining us on Facebook Live and live stream, so glad you've chosen to make our service part of your day, and we know it will be a blessing to you. God bless you today. Let me... Um, let me just make, you may be seated, let me just make a, a couple of uh, reminders today, a couple of announcements at the beginning of our service. Uh, thank you so much, church family, those of you that have participated in the 21 days of sacrifice. Thank you for being a part of that. That time of sacrifice ends today, and uh, I already, I believe God has honored that. I already believe God is doing some things, and I think there are some things yet to come. So thank you for that. Remember that that concludes today. Um, this coming Tuesday at 10 o'clock, we will have prayer here in the sanctuary. Tuesday morning prayer for those that are able to make it. Please put that on your schedule. And finally, the weekend of October 7th and 8th, Brother Tim LeBlanc will be with us. He'll be working with the praise team on the 7th and in service with us on the 8th. That'll be a great time uh, to, to bring some friends with you to church and let God minister through music and through his ministry of music. So mark your calendars for that. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to hear from one of our young people here in just a moment. But before we do, I want us to pray. And uh, we're going to pray over the service today. But I, I felt a, a little quickening this morning in my spirit. I, I want us to pray for our service, pray for our church. But I want to, I want to expand our horizon just a little bit and expand our, our, our territory a little bit, if I can say it that way. Um, if you followed this week at all on General Conference, uh, what was going on in Indianapolis with our with our movement, you, you couldn't help but get kind of a global worldview and, and see that God is on the move, not only here in Central, but all over the world. And that excites me. I, I love that. I love hearing good reports about what's going on all over the globe. And it occurred to me this morning that as, as you know, we, we understand time zones and we factor in, you know, all the all those things, but within that framework today on Sunday all over the globe that there are people gathered apostolics just like us to lift up the name of Jesus to worship God and then also to see a harvest to see God move to see God pour out spirit his spirit to see a revival a worldwide revival so I want us to pray to that end today I want us to pray that God will pour out his spirit here in our local assembly but I want to pray for every church every minister every pastor every saint of God that's gathered all over the world, and let's see God do something awesome in our movement today. Would you help me pray that way this morning by introduction and by beginning this service? Jesus, we come to you with praise. We come to you with thanksgiving. And, Lord, we come to you with a sense of expectation, knowing that you are in our midst. And when you are here, there is liberty, there is freedom, and with God all things are possible. Lord, today I'm praying for the global church. I'm praying for every apostolic storefront. I'm praying for every apostolic church plant. I'm praying for every apostolic church, no matter how big or how small. I'm praying for Central, for Grace Church. Let there be an outpouring of the Holy Ghost today in our services. Lord, anoint the preaching of the Word. Anoint the outpouring of your Spirit. And let there be a harvest of souls into the kingdom of God this very day, not tomorrow, today. Let it be done in Jesus' name. Clap your hands to the Lord and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. In Jesus' name. In 
Jesus' name. God bless you. You may be seated this morning before the praise team comes. We have just been so blessed by our students over the last several weeks in this segment where we have a student come and speak to us today, or speak to us. And so today, I'm so happy to bring to you Brother Eli Tear. He's going to bless us with a word. Would you make Eli welcome as he comes and speaks to us today? God bless you, Eli. Praise the Lord, Grace Church. So a couple of weeks ago when I was praying about a message to speak about, I felt God wanted me to speak about the name of Jesus and the power in that name. I felt he wanted me to let someone here this morning know that there is still a name you can call on in a time of need. There is still a name you can call on when the adversary seems unrelenting. In Mark 16, 17 through 18, it says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In, in my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So my title today is Speak the Name and Take Up the Serpents. God has given us a name today. That name is Jesus, the powerful, wonderful, marvelous name of Jesus. In Mark 16, I believe God wanted us to know that there's a lot more to this name that we all know is Jesus, simply more than we can imagine. This world has come to a point in time where we need that name more than ever before. Today, I believe God is going to show up to tell somebody, watch what my name can do. Grace Church, I've come to tell you it's time to speak the name. In Mark 16, verses 18, it's interesting to me where it says, and they shall take up serpents. But the thing that interests me is where it says serpents. I looked at the definition of serpent, and what the word serpent means is a large snake, not just a normal snake. So what I'm getting is not only does the name of Jesus have power over the snakes, but power over the serpents. So what does that mean? That means the name of Jesus has a power not over just part of the enemy, but power over all the enemy. It has power over the biggest of problems. Later in the verse it says, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. The devil will put things in your life that are meant to kill you. But even if you drink the poison, with the name of Jesus, you will rise and stand firmly above that which was to kill you. You will not die. And in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God said, this is the name above every name, and everything will bow to Jesus, and every tongue will confess the name of Jesus. So if the name is this powerful, who are we to say that my situation is too great to call on the name? Who are we to say the name just can't do it? If the name can do all of this, then the name is worthy of my praise. It's worthy of exaltation. It's worthy of declaration. Hallelujah. In Luke 10, 17, it says, And 17 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us 
through thy name. And literally, two verses later, it says, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So, Grace Church, today, let's speak the name and take up the serpents. Let's speak the name and take up the depression. Let's speak the name and take up the anxiety. Let's speak the name and take up the suicidal thoughts. When we declare the name, miracles will happen. Lives will be restored. There is nothing, nothing too great for the name of Jesus. So let's all today speak the name and take up the serpents. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's just keep this going, church. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to God, we exalt thee, we exalt thee, we exalt thee, oh God. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to the name of the Lord God Almighty. Blessed is the holy name. Blessed is the holy name of Jesus. Oh, of God in this place. Somebody say amen. Praise the Lord. I want you to look to the person to your left and to your right. I want you to tell them something. I want you to declare something to the person next to you. I want you to tell them you're a warrior. Tell them I'm a warrior. Praise the Lord. You have to learn to redefine yourselves, great church, and I believe that's what the Lord wants us to learned this morning from what he gave me. I had a message all kind of lined up and the Lord kind of changed things on me, not kind of, he really did. He threw me for a loop there a few days ago. It was while I was walking my dog. How many of you can say you're spoken to while walking your dog? Well, I can't say I was. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. We're going to read one verse of scripture while you're standing. Then get into the larger scriptural narrative after you're seated. We're going to pray. Let's, let's read Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. It's going to be the primary scripture that we use for our text this morning. Also, this is Isaiah speaking. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Everybody repeat after me. Here am I. Send me. Before we're seated today, we're going to pray once more. And uh, as you pray over the rest remainder of this service, please remember Brother Jeremy Sandlin. He and his family needs prayer this morning. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We appreciate you, dear God. Thank you for the move of your spirit, for, for the encounter, dear God, that we have had here this morning, Lord Jesus, the rich presence that we feel in this place, dear Lord. We ask, dear God, that you minister to us, Lord God. Help us to be receptive and obedient to you in your precious and holy name we pray. Everyone say amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Brother Eli, I appreciate what you said this morning. I'm not saying that because I'm your great uncle. That's part of it. 
But you will see after the close of this message this morning how you are in the will of God with what you said this morning. And I hope you all realize that. I have very little preamble uh, this morning to what I'm going to say. I'm going to get right to my point pretty quickly. And as I do that, I want to ask you a question. What is an arena? I want you to think of the term, the word, an arena. And I want you to ask your question, what is, is an arena? There's many concepts of it. Several definitions for it. You can say that where they play sports is an arena. I remember when my son was very young or younger, he rode bulls. That's a thing. I think many of you know that. Before somebody's clapping, I do not see why you're clapping for that. <laughs> do not understand that. He rode bulls for a very short period of time, and he did that at a, an arena, and my wife and I, as good parents, would go and diligently pray in that arena that my son would not be stomped into the mud. So there's lots of different definitions for the concept of arena. An arena, for the purposes of today, is defined also as a field of conflict. A field of conflict. And for the purposes of this message, I would love that you keep that definition in your mind as we move forward. Over the last several months, last several months, our church has embraced the concept provided by our leadership, specifically our pastor, that we as a body of Christ in this place are poised for and preparing for a tremendous spiritual breakthrough and resurgence, and I believe it. If you believe that, give the Lord a hand clap of praise. I believe it with every fiber in my being. Now we're on the precipice of a breakthrough in this church. And as I was preparing for this message, my mind was brought to, a certain, to certain facts or, or simply observations that I've made and many of you have probably made that I feel we can relate to or at least acknowledge as being true. The first observation is this. There has been enormous personal adversity that has shaken many here to their very foundations. But you have discovered those that, of you that have been shaken, those of you who have had endured the trial, that when all else is shaken apart, that your foundation has remained. Your foundation has remained. You stand in the debris of your life and find yourself staring at a foundation that was constructed by the hands of Jesus Christ. You stand in the debris and the detritus of your life and you look at where you're standing and you see that you're standing right in the place that God wants you to stand and that is on Him, a foundation laid by His hands. The second observation is that the body of Christ here at Grace and in most other, if not all other places, that proclaim the name of Jesus have been under tremendous, concerted, urgent, demonic attack for the last few years. This attack is causing Christian people to question things in their lives that should have been settled. It is destabilizing those that make up the body of Christ. And that has got to stop. It has created in many places a body of believers who are timid in their profession of faith 
It has suppressed or stifled the voices of those who identify as a child of God. People in many instances are reluctant to boldly proclaim the truth of God. We live in a culture that wants to cancel and wants to intimidate people who question the narrative or fight against those things that are anti-God. Individuals are now reluctant to speak and demonstrate the truth of God when they are confronted with the distortions of the word and the outright lies being propagated by the agents of deviancy and perversion that now occupy the positions across our culture. People are intimidated to speak the name of Jesus. People are afraid to do this because of those agents and individuals who occupy lofty positions in our culture, positions that range from government office to unfortunately some pulpits. These arrogant voices that challenge the follower of Christ and the established order of God are emboldened by the anemic response of Christians who have lost their confidence in Christ. These forces stand arrogantly in the arena of conflict and actively try to redefine reality to align with their narrative and their agenda. But here's the thing that we need to understand. That arena is not meant to be populated by the operatives of our adversary alone. Their chaotic, destructive voices are not meant to be the only voices that are heard. Someone who knows God and I believe I'm talking to a congregation of people who know God. Someone who knows God, someone who has the identity, the spirit, and the character of Christ within them must stand in that arena with them as well. They cannot stand there alone and redefine what it means to be godly. Forces that stand defiantly against Jesus need to start seeing men and women and yes, even children who are bold not only in their assertions but also in their lives of faith toward God. Let's go back to our text for a moment. Learn a little bit about Isaiah. In this biblical narrative, we are witness to the beginning of Isaiah's ministry as a prophet of God to Israel and, and Judah. It's a split kingdom at the time. They are, they are, there are interesting parallels one can draw from the moment of Isaiah's calling and his response to our own lives as we navigate this world. Isaiah was a man who lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, immediately prior to Israel and Judah's fall to Assyria and Babylon and eventual exile. This was not a healthy society that Isaiah was living in. He was a man surrounded by a culture who knew of the reality of God, yet openly and defiantly indulged in rebellion, idolatry, and injustice. These were people who knew God and yet opposed God with every fiber of their being. This is the place that Isaiah received his call. 
These were nations, divided nations who were founded upon the reality of God. They were cultures who, who, whose identities were inscribed with the principles presented in Holy Scripture and affirmed by the work and presence of Almighty God. God was not some abstract concept that should have been open to interpretation. He named them, He delivered them, and He set them in a land of promise. These are the people who lived in that divided kingdom. Their very identity and culture were gifted to them by God. They were meant, they were designed to be His representatives to the world around them. Unfortunately, instead of being the accurate emissaries of the Lord in the arena of their age, they yielded to the idolatrous cultural practices of those around them, and their influence and their voice was lost. You possess something, Grace Church. You possess something. Something profound, something life-changing, something powerful. And that is an identity based upon Jesus Christ. You are the children of God Almighty. Your, your entire personage has, has been inscribed with the name of Jesus. And you were never meant to sit silently on a church pew in the arena of combat. Before I return to our text, we must acknowledge that we in this age are surrounded by a culture that has embraced ideals and practices that are in direct opposition to the principles expressed to us in God's Word. How many of you have talked to one another about it and talked to people at work? How things have changed in this society. We are also a people with more than just a passing knowledge of God's truth. We are a nation that was established with Judeo-Christian ethic and morality being ingrained within the fabric of our founding. The truth of God has permeated our society from its origin, and yet we stand here this morning in a culture with a fractured identity. We woke up this morning, put on our good Sunday clothes, cleaned up real good. I can clean up pretty good. Woke up this morning, we looked out upon a societal landscape that has become a spiritual battleground where the arena of combat is populated by those who promote the ideas and positions that reject God and attempt to keep the individuals in it bound to the sin that will eventually destroy them. So I hope that you can see the similarities between the situation of that ancient prophet and that of the modern Christian and yourself. It is into that environment of spiritual dysfunction that Isaiah had this experience. We'll start reading in verse 1 in chapter 6 of Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it 
stood a seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. To put it succinctly, Isaiah encountered God. This mortal, sinful man who was unworthy came into contact in some way with the divine. He beheld the majesty of the Lord, the Creator, and was witness to the revelation of His holiness. Verse 5 gives us his response to that. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This man who held this divine vision had the appropriate response. Ladies and gentlemen, he humbly admitted his deficiency in the presence of the Almighty. You cannot exalt yourself in the presence of Almighty God. He did not overvalue himself or arrogantly assert his own will. He understood that he was unclean. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. There is a tremendous beauty in the work of God in our lives. We see this expressed in this exchange with Isaiah. When we properly appreciate our position and no longer look through the eyes clouded by self-deception, we will understand the incredible worth of Jesus' work on the cross of Calvary. If we position ourselves properly, we will stand in His holy presence as sinners in need of salvation and be able to accept and respond to the gift of Jesus' redemptive, atoning sacrifice. We will understand that we cannot make ourselves pure, that only He can purge us of our sins. We will find a place of repentance and turn appropriately to God. Many of you, the, I would say the vast majority of you, have had that place of revelation and repentance and been filled with God's Spirit. You have gone through that, trans, that transition from revelation of who you are and who He is, and you have been gifted with salvation. It is from this position of awareness and purging that Isaiah was confronted with the call of God. And it is Isaiah's response that we should be interested in. He said this in verse 8 again, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I, then I said, Here am I. Send me. There was no hesitation. Isaiah didn't look around for someone more qualified, with someone with more talent, someone with more ability, someone with a past less sordid. He simply said, Here am I. Send me. You have purged me. Send me. I will enter into the arena even though I may be unqualified, I know that you are God. God was looking for someone to stand in the arena 
and declare his truth to those who were living lives in direct opposition to the order and expectations of their creator. The arena, ladies and gentlemen, of conflict in that age needed someone to stand for the truth of God in an environment of depravity and sin. The Lord asked a question because there was a need. He asked, whom will I send? Isaiah's answer was, you can send me. You can send me. We complain about the culture. We lament about the fact that it is depraved and it is getting worse. But I also hear the voice of God calling out to a group of people in central Louisiana saying, whom am I going to send to proclaim my truth? God needs to hear some of you say, here I am, send me into that arena. We must remember something very important. Very important, Isaiah was not stepping into a position as God's representative to a receptive people. The Lord didn't give him a, a closet full of new suits from Armani and a nice Cadillac. Is that even? Yeah. Used to be a big thing with preachers a long time ago. I drive a Ford Taurus, just to let you know. He didn't give him beautiful suits and a nice ride, beautiful house with a pool. Nothing wrong with those things. What Isaiah got was a call and a responsibility and an expectation. And most importantly, he was given a truth. A truth that was in opposition to some people and was going to ruffle some feathers. Praise God, that's what he was given. This man carried a message that was going to be rejected by many. He was going to be opposed. He was going to be bloodied. He was going to be abused. He was going to be ignored. God's message, ladies and gentlemen, in spite of that, still needed somebody to carry it into the arena. It could not be shut up within his mind. He couldn't just mull it over and appreciate the beauty of it. The truth of God could not be suppressed within him or stifled until Isaiah found a more convenient season of his life and a more comfortable method to declare it. Isaiah couldn't wait on a perfect program at his local church. That man had to stand in the midst of the dirt and the grime of the arena and declare the truth of God to people that needed to hear it. His place was not in the safe confines of the stadium seats along with the educated observers. His place was on the arena floor engaged in the work of God. We in this moment should be able to hear the insistent call of our God. We're not being called to be the distant, distracted observer to a lost world. We're not being called to stand idle as atrocities are being committed against the unborn and our society is being ravaged by the sin-fueled desires of those who consciously reject God's sovereign rule. The blood-bought, spirit-filled child of God is being called to the arena floor and it is in this place that we have to stand. Church, 
you have got to find your voice. You have got to find your voice in a place that may not want to hear you. You have got to find your voice and declare the truth of God. And it may hurt you. It may be a little bit abrasive to our lives. But we've got to stand in the arena and we've got to declare truth. When this message began to form in my mind, I was reminded of something I encountered at some point in my life in my reading. It was a segment of a speech from one of our former presidents, President Theodore Roosevelt. Interesting fellow. Theodore Roosevelt, during his many years in the public eye, was required to make many speeches in public addresses, as you would expect. Many of these speeches were considered highly quotable. Like I said, he was an interesting fellow. Roosevelt was a man of robust character and a passionate defender of his positions and his viewpoints. Because of this, there was a power in his presentations that can only exist in those who actually believe in what they're saying. There's a particular public address that he delivered in Paris on April 23, 1910. I believe it was at the Sorbonne University that resonates with me and, and would become one of the most widely quoted speeches of his career. The speech's name, the overall speech's name was Citizenship in a Republic. The excerpt from that speech is widely known as the man in the arena. I'd like to read that excerpt to you if you don't mind this morning. Roosevelt said this, and I pray that this resonates with somebody as strongly as it resonated with me. Roosevelt said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So that is the place, so that is his place, shall never be those with those cold, timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. That, that speech resonated with me, Grace. There is no sidelines to sit on. You may think there is. We may think there is in this modern world. We may think that we can be disengaged from the work and practices of our God, the, the call of God, that we want to sit on the sidelines. What you don't really realize is that you have been paid for with a price. You have been given power. It dwells within you. There is no sidelines for us. It requires us to be in the arena. There is no other place. He said the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. How dare we criticize someone who's trying to do something for God? The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. We have, we have not been saved to, 
stand idly on the periphery as the adversaries of God and humanity populate the arena floor. We are not designed to stand mutely on the outskirts of the conflict as this world falls further into the insanity of sinful indulgence. We are not to stand by resigned to be only a witness to the dysfunction of our culture. Lord, I believe, is asking a new generation the same question that was presented to that ancient prophet. Who will I send? Who will step into the arena? Who will boldly proclaim the truth of God into the maelstrom of noise that is designed to stifle the liberating message of the gospel? Who will answer, here I am, send me and step into the arena? Do we believe this message? Do we believe this message? Does it resonate with us? Do we understand the implications of its rejection by our society and by our family and by our children and by our spouses? Does it compel us to stand against the momentum of this culture and proclaim truth against lies? Christians are called to be loving, aren't we? We're called to be loving. We're called to be kind. Can I get an amen? Yeah. We're called to be disciplined too, aren't we? What else we're called to? I have it written down here. We're called to be gentle. Right? Get an amen. Okay. Meek. How about Christ-like? We call that? Christians called to be cowards? No. The child of God is, is not to exist separated from the fray. Our place is in the dust and the violence of the spiritual arena. Meekness, ladies and gentlemen, does not equate to fearfulness and timidity. There should be a boldness associated with the presence of a child of God. A boldness births from and tethered to their love and appreciation of Jesus' identity and work. It should never transform into arrogance or elitism. Why? Because our boldness should always originate from an understanding of who we were and what Jesus did in our lives. That is the message. What can you do? How can you stand in the arena floor? Tell somebody about yourself. Declare your testimony. Tell them what you were and what God has done for you and in turn what He can do for them. Boldly declare what God has drawn you from. Tell people that God is good, that you were rotten, but that He saved you. Praise God, that is the message. The gospel should be the song of our souls as we strive in the arena. It is not by our power or might that we are saved, but by Him. When I consider the arena, I think of Romans chapter 8, one of the most widely quoted verses of Scripture in the Bible, I think. It, it's verse 28 of that chapter. It says this, And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. How many have heard that Scripture? Raise your hand. 
pretty much unanimous all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. That, that sounds good, right? Thank you. That sounds really nice. To those who are calling, called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? What's his purpose? If we're called according to it, what's his purpose? That's a question we might want to answer if, we're gonna, if we are staring into the arena instead of standing in the arena. His purpose is contained, it's encapsulated in His message. It's the message of hope for a dying world. It's the message that stands in stark opposition to the message of this world. And what is that message? What is the message of this world? The world's message is expressed in sinful indulgence. Sinful indulgence masquerading as enlightened lifestyles. This world's message uses terminology that confuses genders and devalues innocent lives. I've wondered something for, uh, for some time now, considering what I've observed. Has Christians accepted the muzzle and constraints of this culture voluntarily? Is the Christian, the modern Christian, fearful of the message? Or that proclaiming that message, not only with voice but with deed, may destabilize a very satisfactory life. What are Christians afraid of? The message and language of the Christian, as they say, here I am, send me, and step into that arena, should be clear, it should be loud, and it should be unambiguous. It is a message that pulls at the hearts of those who are separated from Jesus. It is a message that confronts those with their sins and tells them that, li that lifestyle is not more important than Scripture. That's what it is. We have to be comfortable with the message, ladies and gentlemen. It may not be popular in your social group. It may not be popular among certain members of your family. But what service are you doing? What service are we doing by remaining mute with the message as they plunge in headlong into hell. I'm honestly almost finished. It's going to shock you folks. I've got seven minutes left on the clock. We can get our musicians to come on up. It's a record. Brother Ben did not preach an hour. Praise God. You don't have to praise the Lord that high. <laughs> praise the Lord. It is a message that liberates but also makes people uncomfortable with its truth when it is applied to human lives. Let's be very clear. We begin to stand against the forces of darkness that surround us. The atmosphere of that encounter is going to be unpleasant. I'd like you to consider verse 28 again of Romans 8 as, as it mentions two interesting things. All things. Remember it said all things? All things that covers a lot of territory, grace. Have you ever wondered what it might mean? Have you ever wondered what all things might mean? I believe Paul gave us a glimpse of what it might mean as he assures us of the strength of God's love just a few verses later in the same chapter. In verse 35 through 37 it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37. Yet in all these things, in all the things I just mentioned, we are more than what? Conquerors. Can you say that again? Conquerors through him that loved us. The implication of this scripture is that we will encounter these things as we walk through this life of faithful service to God. These things cannot separate us from God as we stand in the dust and the grime of the arena, but we will endure them. We will endure them. As we say, here I am, send me and step into the arena, we will encounter tribulation and distress, persecution, alienation, want and peril. You will struggle against the apparatus of this corrupt world as you begin to pray and when you begin to fast and when you begin to speak and and to stand conspicuously against those ideological and spiritual forces that intend to destroy your lives, your marriages, your children, and your families. This is, however, the environment of the conflict. That's the environment of the conflict. These are the elements of the battle. This is the nature of the arena. This is not something hid from us in Scripture. We are educated by the Word of God as to the requirements and the aspects of our battle. The particular texture and topography of each of our arenas may differ. I don't know what your arena is going to look like. But the purpose remains the same. Would you consider this? Paul, one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament, he stood in the arena as he ministered from a prison. David's arena was the valley of Elah as he properly defined the conflict between he and Goliath. That's an understandable arena. We think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's arena was the furnace. That's what our mind gravitates toward. But I think it was where they stood unbowed before a golden image as music played around them. I think their arena was before the furnace. Their arena was defined by those who hated them for what they represented. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 12, it says there's some people who hated them. He said this, there are certain Jews, those pesky Jews. There are certain Jews speaking to them. The Nebuchadnezzar, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and their names Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image you have set up. Those certain Jews. I wonder when it comes down to it, the ages have all rolled up and this is all over. If someone says there is those certain Pentecostal people in Central. They didn't bow a knee to culture. They didn't bow a knee to the influences of this world. Their mouths were not shut in intimidation by those around them. Those young men answered the call of God and stepped into the arena in their rejection of the culture around them. Stand, please. 
They stood defiantly as everyone else complied. Let me repeat that. They stood defiantly in the arena, Grace, when everyone else complied. These young men stood against a culture that attempted to compel them into conforming to something that was in opposition to the truth of God. They stood in the arena regardless of the consequence. Can we do the same? Can we do the same? I'll close with this. And as I speak this, I would like for you to come forward. It's our tradition. But as you do this, I want you to set in your mind that you're going to speak to God. You're going to listen for that call. And I pray that each and every person here that identifies as a blood-bought, Holy Ghost-filled child of God can respond this morning with, here I am. Send me. We crave a breakthrough here at Grace. We anticipate a revival that will see our families come to know God and find freedom and have deliverance. I have a feeling that our revival and our breakthrough, it's going to happen. But it's going to happen when we are found inside the arena. So my question to you this morning as you consider this message is simple. When God gives you the call, who will I send? Will you answer, here I am. Can you, can you pray this morning, Grace? Can you pray this morning, Grace? Can you ask God to move you from a place of lethargy, from a place of inactivity, from a place of maybe fear and anxiety, Over every heart into the position of a warrior? Willing to stand against the momentum of this world, to stand against the things that are trying to destroy your family, against the spirits and the influences that want to stifle the move of God in this body of Christ. Can you pray this morning? Can God hear your voices? Can you move from this place of being intimidated to speak the name of Jesus into a place of boldness? Where his name is on your lips every time you speak to someone. Speak to the Lord. Pray, church. God bless you this morning. Your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is love. Break every stronghold. Shine through the shadows.
my family. I speak the holy. 